Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, March 7th, 2021. We are in March. Did you see that the agenda says March 12th? I have no idea why it says that. Hmm, maybe because this is episode 212? I don't know. Anyway, it you really... Wrote it. I I did write it, but it, it is March 7th. It's very confusing because there will be... But we won't have a show on March 12th. No, we'll have a show on March 14th. Keep it spicy in our files. Anyway, <laughs> today on Polylog, what... Well, I looked at Meet the Press and this week, Brendan, what did you look at? Uh, I didn't look at anything else. I didn't look at anything. Was oh, this should be interesting. Look at some Sunday shows? No, I'm just kidding. I looked at a Fox News. What have you been doing all day? <laughs> I'm like Lloyd Braun in, uh, in, Seinfeld. in Seinfeld. Yes. Wow, I actually knew what reference you were Ding. coming. <laughs> Another sale. For our four fanatical Seinfeld fans. <laughs> no, I looked at Fox News Sunday. I looked at State of the Union and Face the Nation. And I plan on talking about mainly COVID relief and some very interesting interviews with Senator Joe Manchin. Yeah, the bill was passed. Amazingly, $1.9 trillion. That's what they went in asking for. And that's what they They went out They being the Biden administration. Yes, indeed. Now, it still needs to be confirmed in the House, blah, blah, blah. That'll happen on Tuesday. Seems like it's going to happen. It's happening. So we'll be talking about that and talking about some other COVID-related items and a few non-COVID-related items. But why don't we begin with quality questionable, Naomi? What is of high quality in your world today? Brendan, I have quite the starter of a Mm, clip for us today. I think I know what this is because I heard you laughing and saying you would save it for the show. I know. Okay, so shocker, a polylog shocker. I... Almost agree with Danielle Pletka. Whoa. I know. So Danielle Pletka is with the American Enterprise Institute. She was on Meet the Press. And I think they heard my rant last week where they I told them, if you can't have a decent conversation about sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, stop trying to act like you can. Because they actually had a much more robust conversation about Governor Cuomo. The Cuomo scandal keeps growing. He is just swimming in his own mess. And so there was a much more robust conversation. And Daniel Pleka's closing for today was chef's kiss. So good. Take a listen. Daniel Pleka, are we going to get to a point where it does feel as if um, political party seems to matter in how fast you call for a resignation? 
Oh, there's no question about that. We all remember what Justice Kavanaugh went through. You know, people believe in due process for members of their own party. They don't believe in due process for members of the other party. And this really shouldn't be a partisan issue. What we should want for everybody is absolutely due process, absolutely investigate the claim, make sure they're credible, but no tolerance, zero tolerance for sex pests and pigs like these. Well, that is one way to sort of end that segment there. I think there is universal agreement that we are all tired of seeing this bad behavior from people that are supposed to be role models. Anyway, thank you, panel. Oh, my gosh. That is not how I expected the last sentence or two of her answer to go. It's quite the journey. But if I didn't so profoundly loathe Daniel Plekka for so many other reasons, I might just... Like tattoo on my face, like no tol zero tolerance for sex pets and pigs. Like that is like writing from like a Scandinavian crime, like criminal show on Netflix level of <laughs> loathing. It is so good. But like, okay, this statement is is the phrasing. Yes, is absolutely something to to look at, but. My question for you is... What are they actually talking about? No. What is her position? Because no, so pretty much what they were... Prior to this clip, there was a question of whether or not Democrats are going to call for Governor Cuomo to right. resign. And there seems to be some appetite for it, but recognizing that he was this kind of like a Democratic darling who called it how it was during the COVID pandemic, at the start of it at least... That there's a lot, there's been a lot of affinity for Cuomo lately. So how does that play into the current backlash? Can he would like ride it out? No, understood. But what I'm trying to understand is at the beginning of her answer, she says, Oh, about we Cuomo. need to have due oh. process first. And then she says sex pests and pigs like these, as in like Cuomo, but there hasn't been the due process. Yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I mean, I think what she's pretty much saying and the part that I do agree with is that if there is evidence of sexual misconduct, it shouldn't matter what they did before and it shouldn't matter what you thought of them if there are allegations that are credible and is reflective of a trend like a troubling trend then like get those people out of leadership get them more personally get them out of your life get them out of your children's lives get them out of your like church like get rid of them and like this is like the cancel culture that is like 100 appropriate when someone is dangerous or irresponsible or menacing like get them out well, exactly. And I hope that the conversation included discussions about, like, what does due process look like when you're choosing who your leader is, right? right? Because, exactly. Because the standard of proof is much lower, as we know, in a civil case versus a criminal case, right? And it should be even lower when it's a question of whether we want you to be be in a leadership role. Whether we want to follow your, exactly. your judgment and direction, right? Like. Things don't have to be criminal for them to be wrong and for you to be like, nah, goodbye. Get out of my life. Yeah, maybe we don't have to. Maybe the evidence isn't strong enough to lock you up and throw away the key forever. But it's strong enough to say, you know what? You're not going to have this job anymore. 
Yeah. Or you know what? You're not going to be a leader anymore. Yeah. Or we don't have to like give you money to make movies or oh, whatever exactly. it might be. Like whatever yeah. your thought leadership is doesn't mean people have to listen to you. Yeah. I, what I appreciate is like the zero tolerance, right? Where if someone is doing harm, actively doing harm, then let's stop waiting for them to change. Right. Like just while take they're away in power and, while they're in power. Yes. Exactly. Like that's. People didn't vote for that type of patience. Anyway, I couldn't believe this clip. I was laughing hysterically. And wow, Daniel Plucka gave me a moment today. Brendan, what is your quality moment? Okay, so I've got two. One that's short. One that's important. Okay. Is the short important or are they separate? They're both sort of important, but one is shorter than the other. Okay, first one is a moment on Face the Nation. In fact, an entire segment on Face the Nation where Margaret Brennan decided to revisit the root of so many of the protests that took place over the summer, and that is the horrendous killing of George Floyd. The police officer who we saw on that tape kneeling on George Floyd until he was dead, his trial is about to begin, and the lawyer representing George Floyd and his family was on, Ben Crump, And Margaret Brennan spoke with him, not just about this instance, but about larger issues of police reform. This is hugely important. It is worth a quality moment because we can't just focus on these issues when they're flashpoints in the pan. We must return to them. We must follow up with them. We must determine how those moments are going to be reflected not only in the culture and the fabric of our society, but in the policies And that is what Margaret Brennan asked about, and it is the quality moment that I found this week. And those political promises are often uh, hard to deliver on when you look at the reality of what has happened with this George Floyd policing reform bill, which uh, passed the House again uh, this past week, but is now headed to the Senate, which we know in the past it stalled there. What area is there for compromise? Can you stomach anything compromised on qualified immunity? Well, we understand that uh, politics is the art of compromise because we want to make progress. However, on qualified immunity, Margaret, Mm -hmm. this has to be addressed because this is the thing that allows bad police officers to engage in uh, reprehensible conduct like we saw with George Floyd and countless, I mean hundreds of black people being killed, and it, uh, it shields their behavior. And we're not saying that disqualified immunity reform mm-hmm. will deny police officers their due process, but what we are saying, yeah. it will allow those who have been harmed to have access to court. to be able to make sure we change the toxic nature that some of us feel uh, it happens in policing when we look at that George Floyd video. Mm -hmm. We can do better, America. We must do better. So again, a hugely important topic to revisit and a discussion to have, a voice to lift up, as we heard from Ben Crump speaking about this. And by the way, one thing I noticed here was he said he was talking about qualified immunity as reform, qualified immunity reform, rather than just eliminating qualified immunity. And I think that issue of reforming practices that appear questionable is uh, is a theme that we're going to get to later on 
in the broadcast. But I have one more quality moment, and that quality moment is Jake Tapper, something that he does when he's speaking with Republican governor of Mississippi, Governor Tate Reeves. Now, Reeves had a really fascinating take on COVID and why he was lifting restrictions in his state, and we will get to that. However, the reason I want to highlight what Jake Tapper did here is that Tapper, this is kind of like a textbook case of a Sunday show host following up after having asked a question and providing a whole flurry of fantastic facts and data to not only refute what the guest said in their initial answer, but to kind of press them even harder on it and to inform the audience. Take a listen now. This is after Jake Tapper asked this Republican leader how he felt about whether Joe Biden was in fact elected legitimately, because there's the big lie out there among believed by, I believe, the majority of Republicans that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected president. Take a listen to the way Tapper responded to the kind of dance that Governor Reeves did in not answering that question. There are lots of states that Trump won where there's mail-in voting, including Florida, uh, including Ohio, including Utah. I hear you saying Joe Biden is the president. I do not hear you saying he was legitimately elected. FBI Director Chris Wray, former Attorney General Bill Barr, have both stated there was no widespread voter fraud, none that could have affected the outcome of the November election. Republican after Republican, Ducey in Arizona, Kemp in Georgia, your colleagues, judge after judge, have rejected rejected this argument. This is a dangerous conspiracy theory that tens of millions of people believe. It inspired a domestic terrorist attack on the Capitol. Yes or no, do you accept that the 2020 presidential election was free and fair? Obviously, every election has some questions, but I'm talking about free and fair, legitimately elected Joe Biden, yes or no. So I was very, very impressed with that follow-up. And I think it's a real textbook case in what to do when you have a big lie like the one we're talking about here that is being perpetrated by one particular political party or actor, but you have a guest on You want to ask them about it because it's important to hold them accountable, but you also lay out all these facts so that the audience knows what the truth is. It's interesting. It has me thinking how much to trust the judgment of the journalist to put in enough context that is appropriate, because I I think what I agree, Jake did a good job. I'm just wondering if there was a more transparent guest who would be willing to talk about this, he probably wouldn't have needed such a such an expanded question and he could assume the guest would bring in some of those details. What I'm trying to say is I used to think it was so good when questions were a la Tim Russert, a lot of context, simple question. Which is kind of, this is exactly Exactly that. it, exactly. And I do still really like those types of questions, but what I think I appreciate more now is when a journalist has can make the right call as to determining when that extra context is vital and when the guests themselves will bring it up and kind of describe it in their own words, right? Where if this was... I don't know, Stacey Abrams, obviously she could talk about voter suppression in a lot more detail, but I'm sure so could plenty of other senators who have been working on this. Or I'm thinking of Clyburn, who's talked so much about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act 
And so you're saying Jake Tapper wouldn't need to wouldn't need to give all to, that context in the question because the right. guests themselves will bring it. So yes. you kind of it you're trusting the judgment of the journalist to determine where the details come up, but always in the end, as a viewer, you're still getting it. Right, and that's what. What I was impressed by was that this was the follow-up. Right. Jake Tapper didn't lay all this down in his initial question. But when the answer seemed to be kind of a dilly-dally around the block, Jake Tapper hit him with all the facts and then followed up again. Well, it's interesting you say that because my questionable moment... Yes, here we go. Look at this transition. I know. It's like we've been doing this for a while. My questionable moment was a moment that I saw on this week, which I felt really frustrated by because I felt like in the interview that Martha Raddatz had with Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, she went through a lot of topics and some topics had a little bit of context, some had very little, but in general, it felt like a checklist series of questions on really dense topics. Usually when you see checklists, it's kind of, multiple angles within one piece of legislation, right? Or, you know, it's kind of within a broader theme. And they, you know, they usually be Chris Wallace, who loves checklist questions, you know, rapid fire, as he calls it, will kind of go through multiple angles real quick. But Martha Raddatz went through a checklist style of questions from everything from being the first black secretary of defense to extremism to... Iraq, like so many, like rain, like so many broad topics and didn't dive deep into very many. And I just felt like, where's the context? Like I'm floating in this interview on the surface on so many topics and felt like there really wasn't much substance for such an important interview. Like there were important topics, but not much substance, which is interesting. Yeah, kind of what you're describing sounds like she maybe assumed the audience had deep knowledge on some of these issues that she didn't need to introduce them? Or I think she just wanted to get through a lot, but didn't really care about the audience's journey and being able to keep up. Yeah. Do you have any examples? Yeah. So the one that bothered me the most, it happened throughout the interview, but the one that bothered me the most was when Martha Raddatz asked Secretary Austin about rising extremism in the military itself. And this comes, of course, after learning about so many veterans who were arrested after the January 6th insurrection. I want to turn to to January 6th. More than 40 veterans have been arrested from that day. You have asked for a one-day stand-down for everyone to talk about extremism. What are you hearing in terms of extremism in the ranks? I just got an initial brief back from, uh, from our service secretaries on, on how they're conducting the stand-down, and they're all going about it in a, in a bit of a different way, as you would expect. Uh, great initiative, uh, and they're all doing great work. They're having some really uh, in-depth conversations with their troops on... Uh, on values, on the oath that we took, on the importance of unit cohesion. This is not about, uh, you know, uh, political parties or, or political political beliefs. This is behavior that can really tear at the fabric of our institution. Uh, and so we want to make sure that our, our troops are reminded of, of what our values are, reminded of the oath that we took uh, coming in. And uh, in, in my belief, my strong belief, Martha, is that 99.9% of our troops uh, embrace those values and are focused on the right things and are doing the right things each and every day. I want to move to Iraq. Wow. 
That seems like an entire interview should be about that. Exactly. And I'm still like processing like this term stand down. Like that is not a term I have heard in any other sector beyond the military. Well, that and at no point does he say what they're actually talking about in any of these conversations. He doesn't talk about any of the findings. He doesn't talk about, you know, initiatives that they're exploring or looking forward to launching to kind of combat extremism in the military. He doesn't talk about things that they learned that might have led to some veterans going down this path. Like, literally nothing. Yeah, I mean, he does say they they reminded them of their values and the oath they took. But it's like, it sounds like any service leader, service secretary can kind of use this time however they want. It's not based on data about what's effective in combating extremism. Which, I don't know. There's no curriculum that's been built. Right, like, I think that's the thing. It's, It's... There's zero curiosity as to what is actually happening. And it's really just Martha saying, this was bad, huh? And he's saying, like, yeah, it's bad. We're working on it. And that's it. Like, if you you could, like, synthesize it in so many words. Yeah, but are you working on it? Like, this sounds like when Starbucks had some racist thing happen. Oh, yeah. They were like, like, we're going to do a training. Yeah, everyone's going to be off for one day. All the Starbuckses are going to be closed and we're going to do this training or whatever. But at least that was probably evidence-based training. Maybe. This is even less. Well, we don't know because he doesn't say anything and she doesn't ask any follow-ups. Yeah, she's just like, okay, sounds like that'll do it. Yeah, but like what I'm trying to explain is this is a long answer with zero context zero substance right and that's in direct contradiction to jake tapper's question or jake tapper's follow-up that was so rich in context yeah well like sometimes people think like oh and a long answer is a lot and sometimes it's just fluff well and also her question wasn't very strong exactly what too. are you hearing in terms of extremism in the ranks what are you hearing he's not a reporter he's the secretary of defense it's not about what we he is literally hearing. had an insurrection it's what are you doing ago. what are you doing about it not what are you hearing come on get it together so yeah that was definitely my questionable i had other questionable moments but i wanted to bring this one in particular yeah, i've got a lot of questions What is your questionable moment, Brendan? So my questionable moment is something from Fox News Sunday. It's an answer provided by Asa Hutchinson. He is the governor of Arkansas, Republican governor. And he was asked kind of critically by Chris Wallace about some of the reductions in COVID restrictions, health precautions that are taking place in Arkansas. And Hutchinson's answer here, it's what he says about the responsibility of individuals versus the responsibility of the state that I think is just extremely questionable. Take a listen. Finally, I, I want to get to this philosophical issue. I only got about two minutes here, Governor, but you ca- talk about freedom, and I understand that, and I understand people chafing at, at not being able to lead their, uh, their own lives. Um, but, you know, we keep speed limits and we keep seatbelt laws even though people clearly understand the benefits of both don't don't you worry that you know on the one hand yes freedom but on the other hand uh this may change people when they get the word from the governor of the state you know you can go back a hundred percent and within a few weeks you're going to be able to take off your mask that it may change people's behavior 
we have to be careful about that. Uh, you're absolutely right, and we, we don't want to send uh, the wrong signals. Uh, but whenever you look at the necessity of these mandates and uh, uh, the business restrictions, uh, sure, we have seatbelt laws. That can be a permanent thing, but I don't think you want to keep a business that put in an investment that they could be at 100% capacity and you hold them at 50% or 75%. Uh, you have to be able to give that flexibility uh, in gyms, uh, salons. And so lifting those restrictions, converting them to guidelines is a good balanced step that we can take. The mask mandate, people understand. Right now, people can protect themselves. If you go out and people aren't wearing a mask, keep your distance from them. You wear a mask. Uh, if you have a restaurant not following the guidelines, we'll go to right. a restaurant that is following guidelines. People can make good decisions. So the phrase that stuck out to me like a sore thumb from Asa Hutchinson was this phrase. People understand right now, people can protect themselves, he says. People can protect themselves. But that is, that represents a fundamental misunderstanding of what public health is. It is public. It is not private. It is not personal. It touches on the private and the personal, but public health, and he should know this, we should all know this by now, Public health is not about protecting the individual. The issue of public health is that if someone else is sick, that makes me sick. That makes me more likely to be sick. And one of the fundamental problems with the way our healthcare system has been structured over the last 50 to 100 years is that historically, one of the few measures in human history in a health context that has been in any way effective was public health. It was when we as a society worked together to stop things like pestilence, like plague, that were afflicting whole cities, whole regions. And we did that because we knew that we needed to work together to solve an issue beyond the individual. And we were able to do that at a time when doctors were prescribing pills that were filled with spider webs, right? Like it was a time when personal what health. The soda pop pharmacy, that's yes, like my favorite. <laughs> was very questionable. But now, over the last 50 to 100 years, the idea of health has shifted from a public sphere where we work together to solve collective problems into a private sphere where everyone has their individual doctor who helps them on their individual health journey. But a pandemic is something that happens, not often, but it is a public health issue. So no, people can't protect themselves because if the environment that they are in is risky and is full of disease, they cannot protect themselves. We know as a fact that masks help protect others better than they help protect us. The data shows that. The data shows that. That is what the masks are for. And so this idea that people can protect themselves, that is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what public health is. And it is something that Chris Wallace should have corrected immediately. And also Chris Wallace needs to be careful when he talks about seatbelt laws because seatbelt laws are made to protect the person who is driving, whereas mask mandates are made to protect other people, as well as yourself marginally, but often other people.
So it's rather unfortunate that Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas and any governors or leaders out there still have this idea that this is an issue of people can protect themselves. That is not what public health is. That's not what it's about. That's not what this pandemic is. I don't know. It's almost like, you know, if you write on your job application, people can protect themselves when you're trying to be a leader during a pandemic. I think that's an instant you know, go in the discards file and no, let's look you. for some other resumes. The You're no disqualified. Yeah. The big red stamp. Naomi, let's move on to what's out to you in politics this week. Well, it's interesting you say that because my moment in politics was also another interview with a Republican governor. So I wanted to look at this interview that Martha Raddatz had with Governor Mike DeWine. He's the Republican governor of Ohio. And it was a very, I don't know, I found it a compelling use of deflection by Governor DeWine when Martha Raddatz tried to corner him several times to answer for the decisions that were taking place by Governor Abbott in Texas. Take a listen to how... Governor DeWine, in the beginning, quickly pivots from Texas mess to Ohio accomplishments. I want to get to what you're doing in Ohio in a moment, Governor, but I want to first talk about what is happening with your fellow governors in Texas, Mississippi, who are ending their mask mandates, opening up the state's businesses, restaurants to 100 percent, despite advice from the CDC. Are they making a mistake? Well, Martha, I have a great deal of respect for my colleagues in, in Texas and Mississippi. Um, you know, we're trying to do it uh, the Ohio way. And, you know, with the vaccine, we're now on the offense. That's the great thing. But in Ohio, we can't give up the defense. Uh, we have found that these masks work exceedingly well. Uh, schools are a prime example. Uh, we've seen it in our retail. Ninety. of Ohioans, when they go into a retail establishment, are wearing masks. So they've done a phenomenal job. Our teachers have done a phenomenal job in school. Kids wearing masks every single day. We know that this makes a huge, huge difference. So just really well done in terms of being a smart messenger for your state, for your jurisdiction that you are responsible for. I thought it was it it made sense to not necessarily bash Governor Abbott. It doesn't do DeWine a lot of good to do that, but to quickly pivot to Ohio. But Martha stays on this whole Texas angle. And I just thought it was pretty smart and interesting how Governor DeWine refuses to go down that path of explaining away the decisions made by Governor Abbott in Texas. Moving forward. Governor, I want to ask you whether you thought it was a political decision by Governor Abbott to do what he's done. Martha, I can't, you know, I don't know what's going on in Texas. I, I got one state to worry about. That's <laughs> Ohio. And uh, that's that's a full-time uh, oh, job. Okay, well, let's talk about that. You, you have <laughs> also faced pressure to end the mask mandate. You are a conservative. Your constituents know the risks now. What's wrong with the argument that people will make up their own minds? Martha, throughout this, we've really learned a lot. Uh, you know, when this started a year ago, no one had a clue uh, how effective these masks were. We have seen it. We've actually tested it in schools. Um, you know, we've seen that even when kids are closer than six feet apart in school, when they're all wearing a mask, uh, virtually no no spread in that school, in that classroom. So we, we know it. 
when we put the mask order on and then started actually enforcing it, uh, we started we saw a significant drop in cases uh, slow down. So we've seen it throughout this last year. These masks really, really work. And we're still at a you know fairly high level. Uh, we're at 179 cases uh, per 100,000 for two weeks. That is uh, over the high incidence level. High incidence level, according to CDC, is 100 cases. Now, we've come down a lot. Uh, in December, we were over 700. So Governor, I'm optimistic I, I, about where we're going, but Martha, it's not time to do it yet. Well, I mean, kind of good for him saying, like, right? I can't get into exactly. all this, like what what the thinking is behind some decision made in Texas. Like, like I'm the to- governor of Ohio. I'm not even close to Texas. That's exactly how I felt, too. Like, good for you, Dwight. And it's just like you shouldn't have to answer for every dumb decision that your colleagues are making, especially when you're making the exact opposite. Right. Yeah. And and so I thought it was like a real like, you know, in a respectful way, but still saying, like, I'm not going to do that. Like, this is not my role and this is not the choices I'm making. Well, right. And it's also not his role to, like, totally second guess the thinking that went into what Texas decided. Right. I mean, like, I think he, he clearly disagrees. He disagrees, with what... but he doesn't know their cases. He doesn't know their their situation. Like he's focused on his situation. Yeah. Right. But the, what I will say is I think Martha pretty quickly realizes that like one he's not going to take the bite and also it's just what's the word i'm thinking of it appropriate isn't the word but it's just the questions don't make sense right and he kind of calls her out on it and she quickly is able to turn the question around to saying how do you answer to your conservative constituents who do want the mask order taken down right like she's adept enough to be able to make that quick transition or to make that quick reframing I think another kind of more junior journalist might have stick with like, but is he wrong or would you do what Abbott does or have you talked to him? And it's just like, it's not necessary. He's there to talk about why what's working in Ohio is worth it. And it's very different than what's happening in Texas. Right. And I could understand if like, you know, this was an issue not of the governor of Texas, but of the president of his own party, right, of, of, of the Republican Party. But this is the governor of another state. They're not even in the same governing body. They just happen to have the same title, DeWine and Abbott. So and, and they happen to ha- be in the same party. So I think it's OK to ask a little bit about it, but don't go so deep. Like, especially like it's just <laughs> he's not really it's just there's more to talk about. Right. Right. And I and I bring this up because. I think it was well done by DeWine to say, I don't want to answer these questions. And he does it kind of in a lighthearted way. But I think it's important to realize and recognize when a journalist is expecting answers from the wrong person. And I think that's the part that drives me crazy so much. I actually, I didn't bring it, but I it's a good plug. Good job, me. But I saw this on Meet the Press when Chuck Todd asked Michael Osterholm about guidance for people who have been vaccinated against the coronavirus, but he didn't ask the actual coronavirus task force coordinator who was on the show. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, I mean, Osterholm has good advice and good like feedback, but you actually had the right person to ask and you didn't ask it. So I don't know, that kind of stuff drives me crazy because it's like way to miss the moment. Like just drives me crazy. It's not like a deal breaker. It's not like it's a total waste of time and, you know, that the show is ruined, but too many of these in within one episode definitely drives me crazy. Yeah, totally. What's your moment in politics, Brendan? So 
Let's, I mean, let's get into this because we had a lot of Republican governors on and on State of the Union, Tate Reeves was talking about how Mississippi, under his leadership, is lifting some of its COVID restrictions. So this was a big deal having on the governor of Mississippi because Mississippi actually, although it was Texas that was the first to announce that they were kind of getting rid of their mask mandate, Mississippi decided to lift their mandate before Texas did, before Texas has even went into effect. The governor of Mississippi tweeted on March 3rd, starting tomorrow, we are lifting all of our county mask mandates and businesses will be able to operate at full capacity without any state imposed rules. And so indeed, that is the reality in Mississippi today. So what was most fascinating to me about this interview was the argument that Governor Reeves gave about why he decided to do this and why, in his thinking, the data really pointed toward this sort of lifting of restrictions. Take a listen to some of this exchange with Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper actually provided quite a few challenging questions and pushback on these answers. The CDC just released a study that said areas with no mask mandates or dining restrictions experience increased, <clears throat> pardon me, increased rates of infection and death. Health experts believe that because of your decisions, Mississippians will unnecessarily get sick and die. What's your response? Well, Jake, thanks for having me on today. I always uh, appreciate the opportunity. And, and the fact of the matter is that all of these individuals who for a year have said, follow the science, follow the data, now want me when things are going down to completely ignore the data. The fact is, in, in America, we're seeing approximately 70,000 cases a day. Mississippi is 1% of the U.S. population, and therefore we should be seeing about 700 cases a day if we were on par with with the U.S. The fact is our seven-day average is under 450 cases. But, Jake, I'll tell you, the total number of cases, even though we're about 40% below the national average, I'm less concerned about number of cases and more concerned about our objective. Our objective in Mississippi has never been to rid ourselves of the virus or make sure that no Mississippian actually gets the virus because we don't think that's a realistic goal. Our goal is to ensure that we protect the integrity of our healthcare system such that every single Mississippian that gets the virus that can get better with quality care receives that quality care. And therefore, we look much more closely from a data standpoint at hospitalizations, number of Mississippians in the ICU, number of Mississippians on ventilators. And the fact of the matter is, All of those numbers have plummeted. The fact is, the numbers don't justify government interaction at the levels that we're seeing in other states. Mississippians are watching right now. I understand you're lifting the mask mandate, but do you still think that it's a good idea for them to wear masks when they're in in public, uh, indoors, around other people? Is that something you would recommend, even if you're not mandating it? I not only recommend it, I encourage it. If you have not received the vaccination and you're going into a large crowd, or if you're going out to to dinner, I strongly encourage to Mississippians and people across the country uh, to wear a mask because I believe that it does, in fact, uh, reduce the ability of individuals uh, to spread the virus. No no question about that, Jake. Only about 9% of Mississippi residents have been fully vaccinated, 9%. So I just wanna, before we get into the deep discussion here, I do wanna note that Jake Tapper provided more follow-up, more pushback, more data uh, to kind of push back on the argument that Tate Reeves is providing here. But I did wanna focus our discussion on Governor Reeves's 
position. So obviously, as Jake Tapper does here, you know, you can argue this is irresponsible. It's not time yet. But eventually, we're going to have to recognize some of the things that Governor Reeves is saying here are probably true. You know, we're not going to make sure we're not going to keep everything closed and all the restrictions in place until the number of cases are zero. Right. And it's important to note that a lot of the discussion that we were having many, many months ago when this all started was about the danger not only to lost life, loss of life and long-term effects of COVID, but it was often focused on our healthcare system being overwhelmed. And so if, in fact, it appears that our healthcare system can take care of the people who get COVID-19 and can take care of them effectively and often prevent deaths and extreme illness, then the question is raised, what is the cost that we as a society are incurring with these extreme restrictions. Yeah. And this is so interesting because I feel like as much as there's been so many governors, we haven't had conversations like this too much that gets to understanding their logic and the parameters that they're considering when making decisions for their state. It's about time. We've been in this pandemic for a year to be having those conversations with our leaders and to be having them with members of the coronavirus task force is saying, okay, I hear what you're saying on school closures, for instance, but if all teachers are vaccinated and the threshold is this, you know, what is your recommendation or how, I don't know, I just feel like there should be room to try to understand the logic behind some of these decision makers. I feel like that will give so many people confidence as to how decisions are being made and if it those decisions are going to impact their lives or their livelihoods or their families. Yeah, absolutely. I really think that this presages a lot of the conversation that we're going to see over the next few months. I hope the show hosts are seeking less gotcha moments and more like, oh, interesting, like explain that further. Oh, I haven't heard that part yet. You know, I think that for me personally... And people who have been listening to Polylog for a long time will not be surprised. Like, that's the conversations that are most interesting to me, not like the viral ans- question and answer that's kind of going crazy on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I did want to pair this this point that we heard from Governor Reeves with something that I heard today from Scott Gottlieb, of course, former director of the FDA constant commentator on Face the Nation, but he made kind of a similar point about the fact that restrictions are going to need to be eased back as case counts and numbers decrease. And the first voice you'll hear, of course, is Margaret Brennan. And she is talking about how Dr. Fauci promised that we would finally have those guidelines for people who are vaccinated in the next few days. One of the other things uh, he indicated is that there will be soon to be released guidelines on what you can actually do once you're vaccinated. Um, From your perspective, what can you do? Can you go in and eat indoors at a restaurant right now? 
Look, I think people who are fully vaccinated have waited the full two weeks after the second dose of the vaccinations are going to feel more confident going out. We need to accommodate that. Public health guidance needs to take into consideration what people want to do. Um, we can't be so far behind the aspirations of the public that the guidance itself gets ignored. I think people are rightly sensing that vulnerability overall is declining right now as you see more and more people get vaccinated, as we have more population-wide immunity from this virus from prior infection as well. So people are going to want to start to do things. They're going to want to start to go out more and we need to take that into consideration in terms of how we're putting out guidance. Just looking at nursing homes alone, um, if you look at overall deaths, they are declining. But of the deaths that are occurring, 13% right now are occurring in nursing homes. That's down from 40%. And so that's a real significant indication that the overall vulnerability of the most vulnerable people, those who are succumbing to COVID, is starting to decline quite dramatically as we get more of them vaccinated. Right now, this week, we're probably going to hit about 60% of those, uh, excuse me, 70% of those above the age of 70 are going to be vaccinated, 60% of those above the age of 65. Fully almost 25% of adults are going to be vaccinated probably by the end of this week. So we're reducing the overall vulnerability of the population. That line in the middle of this response that the guidance needs to take account the aspirations of Americans and not be so far from the aspirations that people don't even listen to the guidance yes. to begin with. Yes. That is so important because so much of 2020 felt like we know you're hurting, but you're just going to have to suck it up. And that led to extreme COVID fatigue and people just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, I'm going to risk it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the line that really, really stood out to me as well. So it's funny that you that you noted that. And then, of course, Gottlieb backs it up with a lot of data that a lot of the vulnerability of the populations that were most acutely affected by COVID-19 are now it's that They're vulnerability vaccinated. is is going away. Right. It's it's being beaten by vaccination and it's why we started vaccinating those populations first. But then you get governors on the other end saying, "Look, we've got a state, we've got society that needs to get back online here and you told us that we needed to do all these restrictions to protect these vulnerable populations. Well, now those populations aren't as vulnerable." So, and the COVID-19 infection rates in the community have gone down. So, how can I argue that these businesses need to be closed and that these people need to be, after a year of this, continuing to live in this state? Now, I do think that there is strong argument on the other side saying just wait a tiny bit longer. COVID, as we know, goes down and then can go back up. So there's no guarantee that it will stay down. Although Gottlieb himself predicted that there would not be a fourth surge. Oh, goodness. Now I'm getting so mad at myself for not remembering who said this, but on one of the shows I listened to, someone mentioned, I think it was on this week, someone mentioned how if someone gets coronavirus and dies three weeks from now, that person probably would have gotten the vaccine four weeks from now. Yeah. And that that little bit of extra due diligence will mean literally life or death for some well, people. That reminds me about a number of studies that we saw looking back at if we had put in place the stay-at-home guidelines, you know, a few weeks earlier how many more lives would have been saved exactly. or how much more effectively we would have stopped the spread in the U.S. or at least reduced it, right? 100%. Okay, not, Naomi. Not reducing it, 100%. No, yeah, no, you're not going <laughs> to reduce it. So, Naomi, that takes us to our big journalism segment, which we have collaborated on in terms of what the topic is, but not in terms of the clips or what was said, or in what order it's going to go in. So yeah, it should be interesting how we get through this. But this is about Joe Manchin. Right. So the person we wanted to talk about today is Senator Joe Manchin. He is a senator from West Virginia. He's 
technically Democrat, but he kind of often votes like an independent or very, 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 very moderate Democrat, even moderate Republican. He seems like he's besties with Senator Portman and really oftentimes Senator Murkowski and Collins and Manchin are like a little trio. They often vote similarly. That's right. And so the thing I wanted to talk about, so he was on both This Week and Meet the Press, and I wanted to talk about why, if and why and how, Democrats should listen to Republicans while crafting the legislation itself. And then the other piece I wanted to talk about was the filibuster. So are any of those like kind of subtopics that fit with any of your clips, Brendan? Yes, they certainly are. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I did want to provide a tiny bit more of, of background in that I just want to point out that on Friday, Joe Manchin kind of ground the entire Senate to a halt. And this was the Senate run by his Democratic colleagues and leader Schumer as they were trying to get this bill passed and suddenly seemed to have new things that needed to be dealt with and changes he needed to have made to the bill before the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill would be approved to his satisfaction. And of course, being kind of the last of that 50 votes, it was critical to get him on board. And he apparently spent a lot of time speaking not only to Democratic leaders in the Senate, but also to, as you mentioned, Republican Senator Portman, maybe even some other Republicans, and then finally to President Biden, who kind of, we are told, pushed him over the edge and to the yes after he received the concessions he wanted. The first clip that I wanted to look at was this question by Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. He essentially asked Senator Manchin, hey, where are your Republican friends that you so often work with? They're nowhere to be found right now. So how come you couldn't get two people that you normally can work with, uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, to vote for this bill? Three of you usually see um, relief bills like this. You guys usually yeah. see things the same. Well, let me say this. A lot of the things that I supported and a lot of the changes I was asking for and a lot of the changes in this bill came bef- because of our, uh, our, our, our gatherings and us working together. The Democrats and Republicans talking. We've been working together for over a month on this. And an awful lot of the things that I was able to, because of the position I'm in right now, mm-hmm. was able to bring that forward of what they believed in, too. We did a, this piece of legislation has far-reaching, uh, uh, I think, mm-hmm. assets for the American public. We're helping everybody. There's no one missed in this piece of legislation, and I'm proud of it. Also, Chuck, on this legislation, this is the first time that we were able to put absolute direct targets on what needed to be fixed in America. Every city in America, every county in America, every municipality, every incorporated town is going to have a chance to control their own destiny because we put infrastructure in this also right. in the state and uh, in, in the state and municipal and cities. It's going to be wonderful. They can fix sewers. You know, they can fix water projects, everything. So just as I saw on my shows, not a clear answer on that one. Yeah, I thought this, I mean, I was pretty frustrated by Chuck Todd because he had pretty much zero follow-up on this. But I think it's important. Why is Senator Manchin spending the time, spending the energy in incorporating the feedback of people, of Republicans who are not going to vote for him, who are not going to vote with him to begin with? It's it's mind-boggling. And he seems quite proud of the collaboration that he has with those people. Yes, yes. 
He it doesn't make sense. Martha Raddatz on this week also brought this up. Her follow-up question, which I'll share right here, is both explicit and... Rated R. <laughs> I was going to say scathing, and that seems a bit harsh. But well, it's just your use of the word explicit was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's definitely <laughs> different than the tepid whisper from Chuck Todd. Take a listen. Senator, we know you are all about bipartisanship, but President Biden did not get a single Republican vote for a relief package in the middle of a pandemic. So at this point, doesn't bipartisanship seem like a false hope? Not at all, Martha. The first group of people that President Biden brought to the White House was 10 of my friends and colleagues, 10 Republicans, to see what their idea was. He, they came out with a proposal. He thought we needed to do a lot more, which that is his prerogative, and I support him with that. But with that, we had an awful lot of input from Republican friends all through this process. A lot of the changes that we made that were basically brought into this process came by working with my Republican and Democrat colleagues together. There were about 20 of us that worked continuously. So they had tremendous amount of input. They just couldn't get there at the end. And, and the President Biden encouraged them to be involved all the way through. He spoke to them all the way up to the end. So I know that. I know in his heart, and he will continue to reach out. That's just who he is. Yeah, this is very similar to what I heard from Joe Manchin on State of the Union when Jake Tapper asked a very similar question, actually. And it's, it's really interesting to hear all these different takes on Joe Manchin's answer, because I think we get a little bit more insight into what he's doing and why he's why he's approaching things the way he is. And this is important because, again, Joe Manchin, as a lot of headlines have said, is one of the most powerful members, if not the most powerful member of the Senate right now, and perhaps in all of Congress, because nothing is going to happen in terms of bills getting approved and to the president's desk unless Joe Manchin is happy. I know that bipartisanship is very important to you. Uh, it's, President Biden says it's important to him as well. At the end of the day, this legislation passed with no Republican votes in the House, no Republican votes in the Senate. Some Republicans tried to offer to negotiate. Um, it didn't happen. At the end of the day, who do you blame for the fact that this bill got no Republican support in Congress? I never do place blame. What I do place is basically we don't have the, the, the tolerance to sit down and work more. But let me tell you, Jake, this was more of a bipartisan bill than you might think. First of all, the president asked for 10 Republicans to come over and see him. That was the first visit to the White House was my Republican friends and colleagues that went and sat down. They offered their, uh, their proposal. They didn't think it was uh, adequate enough to do what President Biden has his vision for America and coming out and making sure that we can recover. I think what he did was correct, but he listened to them. And guess what? For the whole month, Jake, we've worked together. We've had Democrats and Republicans working together. A lot of the things that I was able to get in or some changes that I was able to do because of the position I, I'm in to hopefully help uh, message that, if you will, made significant changes. We targeted, in this bill, we targeted where help is needed. We were able to target basically the people that need help, the children that need help, the schools that need help, the people on the front line, all of America. That's what we were able to do. And a lot of that was by talking with my colleagues and negotiating back and forth. And I was able to channel that through, I think, and hopefully make a bill that is a much more encompassing bill. I think it's a great mm -hmm. piece of legislation. going to help a lot of people. So what do you take from this? I mean, for me, it's uh, it's it's 
first of all, from a messaging perspective, it's kind of useful for Joe Manchin to be out there and say, hey, a lot of people might be saying it's not bipartisan, but actually it is. It is in its heart because I've, we've incorporated a lot of ideas into the But into it's the not bill. bipartisan if in the end they're not going to vote for it. Well, but I don't know. I mean, but then we heard the other definition of bipartisanship from White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield, uh, also on State of the Union. And she was saying, look, the majority of Republicans polled in the country, not elected Republicans, but Republicans polled, agreed and supported this bill. And moreover, it had a lot of support from state and local Republican leaders, including, for example, the Republican governor of West Virginia, the state that Joe Manchin is from. So there's a lot of different ways to say it's bipartisan outside of the fact that not a single Republican in the House or Senate decided to vote for it. I I don't know. I go back and forth because, yes, it's important to hear from the other party when you're making legislation and getting feedback. Like, I... I don't disagree, but I really loathe the fact that Manchin spends so many time collaborating with people who are going to not stand by him (laughs) in the end. Right. And so the political ads would say a 1.9 trillion bill voted down on party lines. They couldn't get a single Republican. And it doesn't matter that Manchin spoke to so many or incorporated it in. Like, they didn't vote for it. So Right. It might be hard for people to understand that. Right. And then, I don't know. I just, are you going to do this for every issue? Incorporate feedback for something that ultimately they're not going to vote for? I, I find it very problematic. It is a bit of a head scratcher, like what he was doing there exactly with his, with his choices in this. But I mean, I mean, let's take healthcare, right? If it's going to pass with 50 votes and you have one person who would like to take down Obamacare and put in some mystery bill and there is a provision to expand Medicaid, which would make it easier for kind of middle income people to get quality, affordable health care. If those Republicans are still in the burn it all down camp, like, why are you incorporating that feedback into a proposed bill that's going to make it with 50 votes? Like, I just genuinely don't understand the rationale of incorporating feedback for someone who's not going to vote for it and weakening the goals of the bill to begin with. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it does make you wonder, like, did Joe Manchin really think he was going to get some one of those right. one of those Republicans and he just failed in the end? And was kind of burned by that fact. What what exactly was going on here? Right, and maybe he was, and and then maybe my criticism is should be tempered a bit. But if it seemed like he wasn't going to get them, then why waste all of your colleagues' time all yeah. day Friday? Yeah. Well, <laughs> speaking of that, there was a question that I did appreciate. I don't have the clip here from Chris Wallace. First, he said, "Do you like being?" you know, the most powerful person in the Senate. Oh, yeah, I heard that in some of my shows, too. Yeah, Uh but then he went on and he's like, (laughs) Chris Wallace is like, come on, you're on four Sunday shows Oh, nice way to call it You don't like it just a little bit? Like... That is excellent. Yeah. Well, that's funny. It sounds like a conversation we had when we were looking at the guests today. And I was like, oh, Manchin's everywhere. And you said he's really leaning into his power. Yes, and what, do you remember what I said? What did you say? Why wouldn't he? Right. 
right? If you have that and you're leveraging it and you're using it, this is the time to claim it and make it national. Mm-hmm. And do you remember what you said? What did I say? Well, not everybody would might want to do that. And I rolled my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chris Wallace at the at yeah. breakfast this yeah. morning. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Chris Wallace, I, I wanted, there was an interesting contrast here. And this is, you know, you can see the glass is half full or half empty, right? And it's, this is why it's important to have some ideological diversity in the hosts or their proclivities. So Chris Wallace on Fox News, no surprise that he kind of leans a little more to the right side of the spectrum. Jake Tapper on CNN. I think we can say that a lot of people would assume CNN leans a little more to the left than Fox News. Well, take a look. (gasps) Shocker claims on Polylog today. My goodness. Take a listen to two kind of key questions about this bill lobbed at Joe Manchin from both Jake Tapper and Chris Wallace. And you'll understand what I mean by glass half empty, glass half full kind of takes here. Here, first of all, is Jake Tapper in his first question to Joe Manchin. So after changes that you pushed for, enhanced federal unemployment benefits now expire about a month earlier, and there's a new income cap for writing them off on your taxes. I have to say, you represent one of the lowest income states in the nation. Why were you fighting for less help for citizens during this cruel economic time? Well, Jake, first, let me just say it's always good to be with you, okay? And next of all, uh, all I did was try to make sure that we were targeting where the help was needed. Right now, we're getting $300 to people who are unemployed by no fault of their own. I want that to continue seamlessly. I think that basically, if you look at all the things that we've done in targeting, how we help the families, how we help their children uh, with child tax credits, there was so much more that we were doing. We're giving more help to individuals than ever before. 300 was seamless. It continues on through the end of August if needed. And that's what we tried to do. Essentially, the question by Jake Tapper is, why did you fight for less for your state? When your state probably needs a lot. Right. Listen to Chris Wallace's question in stark contrast. But but let's talk about the bill and this question of the amount of aid that you gave. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office came out with an estimate that the economy was down only six to seven hundred billion dollars because of the pandemic. And yet this bill gives one point nine trillion dollars, triple almost what the CBO says you really need. That raises the question, one, is this bill going to overheat the economy and create inflation? And two, as you point out, it isn't all just this year. It's out four, five. Some of the money doesn't co- get spent till 2030. So is this really COVID relief or is this a Democratic wish list? No. Uh, COVID relief is more than just the vaccines. The vaccines is the most urgent thing we can do. Keeping people able to stay in their homes is absolutely as urgent as anything else we do. And we did all of that. COVID relief means, are you going to be able to move on, have the economy move on as strong as you want to, not have a lapse in that? That's why we were able to target it and move it out some. I'm hoping the economists look at that too. President Biden was concerned because he was there in 2009. I was not. I was still a governor at that time when they did the Recovery Act and they thought they didn't do it quick enough. I basically reminded people that was a financial collapse. This is a health care pandemic. It's much different. We will come out of this. So I wanted to include a little bit of the answer there. I think Joe Manchin engaged with the answer a little, a little bit more than we engaged with the one from Jake Tapper. But when you look at the questions, Jake Tapper's question is, why are you fighting for less for your state? And Chris Wallace's question is, 
why are you making this so much more than it needs to be? <laughs> right? I mean, literally glass half empty, glass half totally, full. Totally, totally. From those two, those two hosts. Both of them interesting, right? I'm interested in each of the answers. Very interested in each of the answers. But we have to get to this question of the filibuster because it was one of the most fascinating things that's kind of hanging out there overall. And Joe Manchin is one of the linchpins here because to reiterate, the filibuster means that for anything except for one of these budget reconciliation bills or a confirmation, you need 60 senators, essentially, to get anything passed in the Senate. And since all the bills, including those from the House, have to go through the Senate for approval first before they reach the president, that means no legislation is passed unless it, there is a supermajority of 60 senators. That's what the filibuster requires right now. It is an arcane rule of the Senate. And amazingly, since it is just a Senate rule, you only need 50 people to change that rule. But right. And it's an arcane rule that was made in response to civil rights bills. That, right. That it's not a founding father. Segregationists wanted to stop. Yes. Right. And it's become more and more powerful over time, this filibuster rule. Exactly. So all 50 Democrats could vote to change the rule, you know, tonight if they wanted to. And then they could rubber stamp Biden's entire agenda and supposedly the progressive Democratic agenda. But there are lots of holdouts within the Senate, including a former senator named Joe Biden, who happens to be president. But Manchin is widely considered to be somebody who repeatedly defends the filibuster and the importance of it to the chagrin of many progressives and Democrats. But he was asked about it extensively today. Take a listen to his answer on Fox News Sunday. The question I have is, would you consider if the Republicans just won't go along with anything reforming the filibuster? For instance, the filibuster doesn't apply now to either budget rules, uh, budget, that's why you have this reconciliation, budget issues, or to nominations. Would you consider extending exemptions to other issues? Or would you consider Going back to the old filibuster, sort of like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and Jimmy yeah. Stewart, where you want a filibuster, it's not an automatic 60 votes. You've got to stay on the Senate floor and keep talking. The filibuster should be painful. It really should be painful. And we have, we've made it more comfortable over the years. Not intentionally, maybe it just it evolved into that. Maybe it has to be more painful. Maybe you have to stand there. There's things we can talk about. But just to be clear, with 30 seconds left, sure. you would consider making it a harder to invoke the filibuster so that you just auto don't automatically have 60 votes that you need for any legislation. I'd make it harder to get rid of the filibuster. I'm supporting the filibuster. I'm going to continue to support the filibuster. I think it defines who we are as a Senate. I'll make it harder to get rid of it, but it should be painful if you want to use it. You just you should make you make sure the place works to where, OK, I want to work with you. How can we do this? How do we move forward? My Republican friends are my friends. They're not my enemies. And my Democrats is my colleagues. They're not my enemy. either. That's my caucus. Together, we've got to make this place work. And it should be harder to invoke pain. It should be painful for us. Don't make it painful for the other side. So this was really fascinating to me. Because repeatedly, Joe Manson, Manchin has said, as we mentioned, he supports the filibuster. And that seemed to be in opposition to any reform of the filibuster. But here he is very clear that he is open to reforming the filibuster, to making it more like it used to be, like it was in the old film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that Chris Wallace references here, 
where if you want to slow down a bill from being passed and you are in the minority, you can get up and you can just talk, 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 talk to keep debate open to stop the bill from being passed. But eventually, you know, you're a human being. You can't just talk forever indefinitely. So talking buys you time to, you know, have your side and your team, you know, share your arguments and do some deal making to stop the bill from being rushed to the floor and rushed to passage. But eventually you've got to sit down, you've got to eat, you've got to drink, you've got to, you know, move on. Currently, it's important to note that that's not required. All that it takes to invoke the filibuster is someone to send an email and that's it. It's it's invoked. And it's almost like, you know, you've talked forever and suddenly nothing ever, ever gets out of the debating period and is able to be actually voted on because of that email. So it, it is way easier than it used to be. Yeah, I found this really fascinating because for so long I have assumed Senator Manchin is unwilling to even consider any filibuster reform yeah. or to get rid of it. And to hear his desire for it to become, quote, more painful. It reminded me of the Parks and Rec episode where Leslie Nope is filibustering something and she's in roller skates. Do you remember? No, I don't recall anyway, that one. She did great. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that you kind of have to raise the threshold if you want to pursue this. Yeah. So something worth considering. My frustration around the question of the filibuster or its use on Meet the Press stems around the fact that there was pretty much zero questions to Senator Manchin about what he thinks about the Senate right now. Does he think it's functional? Mm. Does he think it's productive? Is this a good governing body? The answer that I saw on Meet the Press makes me think that Senator Manchin is fine with the Senate's productivity levels. And that's the part that made me really frustrated. And I felt like Chuck Todd should have been a bit more prepared and having very specific follow-up questions. So hold on. To to understand what you're saying here, you're annoyed that you didn't learn how Manchin feels about the Senate, or you feel like you did learn how he feels about it, but Chuck Todd did not probe it deeply. The latter. Okay. Take a listen to... Manchin's answer about why the Senate needs to stay the way it is. And part of Chuck Todd's follow-up is helpful or useful, but not in the way that I'm describing here. What you saw happen with that 50 vote swing and one vote, no matter who it may be, can make a big difference in a, in a tied uh, Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you imagine doing day-to-day operations this way? Can you imagine not having to sit down or there's no reason for you to sit down with your colleagues on both sides and have their input. The Senate is the most unique body of government in the world, of governing body in the world. It's deliberate. It's basically designed, Chuck, to make sure the minority has input. That's exactly our founding fathers. And now, if you want to make it a little bit more painful, make them stand there and talk, I'm willing to look at any way we can, but I am not willing to take away the involvement of the minority. I've been in the minority. I've been in the majority. And I can tell you the respect I have on both sides when I've yeah. been there should be, I got something to say. Listen to me. And I want that to happen. Well, Senator, the filibuster was never a, an idea of the founding fathers. That is a Senate rule that was created by senators later, in fairness. It's not a founding father idea. Let me ask you this. You didn't, no, direct, no, hey, you didn't directly answer my question about would you be willing to go a reconciliation route for election-only bills like H.R. 1? Oh, what an interesting question. I kind of want to hear the answer to that. Yeah, essentially, Senator Manchin explains that he 
is open for election reform. And if it needs to happen with 50 votes, then that is fine. But he doesn't want to outright take out the filibuster and make that the kind of the default. Like he wants senators to have to work for 60 votes. And if there are certain issues where it's really important to pass, then he would be open to passing it with 50 votes. Hmm. But it's kind of making it like the exception rather than the rule. Interesting. So now when you're mentioning that, it makes me start thinking like, okay, so is he really for reform or is he not? Right. Well, and this goes back to what I was saying before we played this clip on Meet the Press, that it feels like Senator Manchin is okay with how the Senate is working. He's okay with how little legislation they actually vote on. And this is not how the Senate has always been. And so I just feel like if you're going to have this conversation about the filibuster, yes, explain the rules, but explain how that rule has impacted the governing body to begin with. And I don't think there's enough of that. And it definitely wasn't in this interview on Meet the Press to then have viewers say, okay, I agree with Manchin or I don't. Yeah. And this is, again, for the audience's edification, the reason we're talking about what this one senator thinks about the filibuster is that what he thinks might mean the difference between Joe Biden getting past two meaningful bills this year or Joe Biden getting past like four, five, six meaningful bills just in this year alone. Exactly. It's hugely, hugely important what this one senator thinks. And especially because... Democrats, but in general, both parties campaign on big promises that they cannot deliver on at all with the 60 vote threshold in the Senate. Right. But I do appreciate that Chuck Todd pushed back on the, hey, the filibuster is not of principle of the founding fathers. That was helpful. Yeah. Providing that providing that detail. Exactly. I just think it's, it's I do want to point out to people two resources that might be useful and worth kind of looking at. If you want to learn more about this, and I do find it quite fascinating, there is a book called Kill Switch that talks, and I think I mentioned it before, that talks in detail about the history of the filibuster. And then, and it just came out, and it is from the perspective of someone who worked in Harry Reid's leadership, Adam Gentleson. What a great last name. (laughs) Yeah. And there is another book, and I haven't gotten all the way through that one, but from what I've read of it, it is really, really interesting to look at the history. And Gentleson, by the way, has a kind of condensed Spark Notes version that was published recently in the New York Times, if you want to kind of look for that. And then there's also a fantastic and very long but detailed profile that came out of Joe Manchin a few years ago. It was actually back in 2016, or I think it was 2017, shortly after Donald Trump was elected, Joe Manchin was considered and seemed to be interested in being in President Trump's cabinet as Secretary of Energy. But it talks a bit about the history of the Democratic Party in West Virginia, how it is that West Virginia, which is so red Republican, has a Democratic senator, and where he comes from and how that shift kind of happened, where West Virginia always voted Democrat and now always votes Republican. And you get a sense of like this strain within Joe Manchin, which is very much, I do want to work with the other side. I believe in the importance of that. And bipartisanship is kind of like in his bones as it is in his state uh, or in in the way he interacts with his state. Right. That's true. That's interesting. Yeah. So two resources that you'll be able to find in the show notes. Yeah. Well, 
That takes us to show ratings, Brendan. Yes. Any of any shows in particular for you have like high or low or, you know, kind of immediate impressions in the ratings? Yes. Yeah, so kind of the way you phrase that, I have got a proposal for you that I think will make one of our listeners very happy. And that is that I have found myself in recent show ratings racking my brain with what the hell we mean by a seven versus a three versus a five. I feel like I know what I mean, but you mean something different. You're never going to give a 10 and and all these sorts of things. So I'm thinking we should probably go to a simple five point scale. And here is the definition of what that means. Three right in the middle means the show is okay, right? Right in the middle. Okay. Four is it's a good show. Two is it's a bad show, right? We're getting, you know, moving in in those directions. One is it's a very bad show. And five is a very good show. So you see how we go out from the middle? Sure thing. That sounds great. I like that idea. And it helps me understand where these shows are. I feel like I instantly know way better. So So, five point scale. So quick rapid fire. What are your three shows then? In that five point scale, very easy to say. State of the Union, very good. Okay. <laughs> you have to give a number. I don't remember what you're... That's five. Okay. All right. Fox News Sunday, I think just good. And that's a, that's a, that's a four. And Face the Nation, I'm going to say, okay, there really wasn't a lot that stood out. So that's a three. So three, four, five. I think I would say this week was a three. There were certain moments that were okay, but other parts that... It was a very uneven show. And Meet the Press, I think I would give a four. Pretty solid show some frustrations but nothing that was a deal breaker perfect see that's so much clarity i love it all right so for today's dialogue challenge how about talking about um being willing to uh change the standards you judge things by just like we we just did i think that's a good conversation right well it also ties in with our conversation around covid and how governors are making decisions yeah about the standards for that absolutely as as the environment changes or they see things a little differently so if you have any standards you want to talk about or anything at all you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com you can follow me at beastidle on twitter you can follow me on twitter at sodonaomi underscore and you can follow the show at polylogcast thanks everyone and we will talk with you next week bye have a great week bye